Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. My name is Jerry Wan, your host, and happy Chuseok, happy Mid-Autumn Festival, happy Moon Festival, whatever you call it, and however you celebrate it, happy fall. And I hope you have had a chance to celebrate with friends, family, or making plans to, or getting your hands on some delicious mooncakes. Today, I'm excited to share our episode with a fellow Korean-American father, Joe Kai, who is a musician and a teacher and a content creator about our respective journeys as I learn about how he uh, went from wanting to be a teacher and now a, I guess, having been a teacher um, into being a musician and leveraging his creativity and his knowledge of social media platforms to enact the changes that he wants to uh, push for the changes that he wants to see in the world uh, in our collective efforts to leave this a little bit of a better place for our children and yours. So excited to share Joe's story. Before we get started, I also wanted to make an update for Joe. He has joined the team at the Uri Show as a composer, cast member, and writer, working with our friends Nari and some other amazing smart folks in creating content, bicultural uh, content for children, Korean American content. And so I encourage you to go check out the Uri Show on Instagram, on the website as well. We'll put the links in the show notes and definitely head over to Joe's Instagram page right now. It's Joe Kai, J-O-E-K-Y-E. Or just follow the links uh, on our Instagram or our website at Dear Asian Americans and we'll lead you to all the wonderful things that Joe is doing. Uh, as always, hope you're staying healthy and safe as we continue to navigate these challenging times and enjoy a great week. Uh, enjoy the festival, uh, however you celebrate it. And here now is my conversation with Joe. Hey, everybody. Hope you are staying safe and hope you're doing well. We're talking today at the end of July. I don't know when you're going to hear this. Probably it's August of 2021. And I hope that the world from a COVID perspective is a little bit better than some of the news that we're getting out of different parts of the country. Here in Los Angeles, we've been back to indoor masking for a few weeks. And we are hearing that DC and Vegas and other parts of the country that are experiencing another rise in COVID cases, particularly in the unvaccinated, are going back to masking. So get you vaccinated. That is the number one thing we want to tell you about. And if you that means you stop listening to this show <laughs> to run to a pharmacy to get vaccinated, we'll take it. Really excited to talk to my guest today. Uh, I found him on the internet, so we are internet friends. I guess, yeah, for now, we're internet friends for now. Um, <laughs> uh, so he's really, really talented. And that's where I, I found him. And that's how other folks found him. He is a violinist looper uh, and a vocalist. He sings, he performs for adults and for children. He's done some cool things. He's opened for Yo-Yo Ma, for the comedian Hari Kandabalu, and for those in my age group, for Warren G, and for Bernie Sanders. And he's been featured everywhere. He's been a TEDx speaker. He's collaborated with not just well-known names globally, but particularly within members of our Asian American community. So brings me much, much pleasure, also particularly since he is from the Pacific Northwest, uh, like my wife is, uh, to be sharing this conversation with Joe K today. What's up, Joe? How's it going? I am so excited for this, man. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's cool that you you said Joe K, which is like actually how you pronounce my last name in Korean, but like since six years old and I moved here, it's Joe Kai. So now everybody calls me Joe Kai. You know, I have another friend, uh, Mike, if you're listening, another K friend. And you know, it's weird because I think we've been talking a lot about names and identity, where identity, which sort of, you know, goes into names recently, 
in the past year, particularly as we're dealing with a lot of stuff in our community. Yeah. And just sort of the proper pronunciation of names. Right. You know, like, I'm sure it was not any of our fault, but many Korean last names, when it gets Romanized, butchers it up. Right. Park. So like. Right. Like, how do you take E and then make it Lee? There's no vowel <laughs> right, there right. or there's no consonant there. Right. You know, like my last name one is more of a succinct staccato one. But then when spelled W-O-N, it's just drawn out. Um, and so it's really fascinating. I think when we get into our, our given names, it's even more so. Right. And I think we're starting to see a little bit, at least my friend Michelle, who, who's an activist and, and very uh, prominent on Instagram and social media pages. She just recently declared she's going to start going by her Korean name which is Mijong. And so for folks who don't know how to say our names, there's really one easy way to not F it up, which is just to ask us <laughs> how, how we say it instead of trying to make it up as you go. Actually, yeah, you know, Mike, actually, his company name was spelled Kai, but differently, because I think he just said, you know what, I'm just going to own it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where I am. I mean, I, I love the the push to decolonize our names and to decolonize the pronunciations of our names. But I guess, yeah, I've been Joe Kai since... Since a very young age, and now at this point, right? If someone call, like calls me kid, then I'm like, "Who's Ooh, that?" <laughs> oh, you you know what's up, right, right, right. Well, I know, yeah, I know that they're legit Korean, and I should probably be like bowing, you know. <laughs> I I think you should also uh, work towards if not already working working on some collaboration with uh, comedian Joe Coy and just confuse all the yes. people. So we know you now on uh, those of you on TikTok, those of you on Instagram and other social media platforms at Joe K. Leveraging the platform and your musical gifts to spread awareness and to challenge some of the status quo and to basically, you know, use your platform to even commentate some of the, the things that are happening. We know that, but I want to know where this all started. Um, tell us about the K family story, how y'all came here from Korea. We know that you're from Seattle originally. Tell us about that story and how that shaped your early view of identity in this country. Sure. So my dad, uh, this was 93 is when we decided to move. Um, before that, my dad was a high school teacher in Seoul, Korea. Uh, he was teaching high school history. Um, and as much as he could, uh, he was also running out to demonstrations against, uh, you know, the various puppet head dictator, you know, quote unquote, democratically elected presidential regimes uh, of South Korea. Um, and I think it was right around the time my sister was born um, in 1990 that uh, the schools and the teachers were all asked to sign non-union clauses. And so that's when he decided to uh, to go back, to go back to grad school and uh, try to become a professor, um, which would, I think, in his mind, give him a little bit more freedom academically. Um, and uh, it was also around that this is right before the the whole IMF, uh, you know, economic crash basically great recession in, in korea in the 90s um and his uh, academic advisor had the foresight to recommend that he come out to the united states you know english was becoming a really important part of being uh in, in higher ed um and so he decided to move at the age of 33 with his family of four to the united states it was a it was a very courageous and bold move and uh on on good days or when our relationship is strong. I'm like, good job. Wow. Good for you. And, uh, on, on, you know, in the months during which we're stalemated and, and fighting, uh, then I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, come on, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we moved here, landed in Boston because, I mean, this is before the internet. And what did, what did he knew? No, he knew that Harvard was in 
was in Boston. So like, let's go there. Um, and then he would study for the TOEFL and then uh, apply for apply for, for graduate school then. Um, I'm pretty sure we, we basically burned through our savings in two years, um, finally got accepted to the University of Washington. And so that had us moving when I was about to enter third grade uh, across the country to Seattle, um, where I would say, you know, life was relatively difficult. We had a lot of educational privilege, obviously, um, but from a financial pers- you know financial standpoint um we were low income uh i got i was on free lunch um there was a period of time when we were living in the a basement of a church members eating ramen from you know newspaper that had been you know laid out on the on the carpet um yeah so that's that's how we that's how we ended up here wow i mean i, I think that's awesome you know we came here in 92 and our fathers are probably around the same age. You know what the the wild thing is? It's to imagine moving now. Yeah, I know. Right? Like <laughs> with kids. Right. With kids to to without the internet, without the ability to Google <laughs> stuff, without virtual communities that we can ask questions to preview things or, you know, that that's wild, right? Like just this notion of whatever the driving force was, whether it was hope or whether it was running away from a crappy situation. That so many of our parents, um, at least ours, your, yours Naivete. and mine, we were right, right. But we were actually it was a choice, <laughs> right? So many of our friends, mm. like they didn't get the choice, whether it was to refugee or adoption. And and just to think about, like, holy crap, like I and, and so many people that are listening in your twenties or thirties wrongfully think that so much of our lives have already transpired and that we're sort of in a catch twenty two rut, if you will, or I chose this. Not only in that, but also should be inspiring for us to know that many of our parents or your grandparents, depending on how old you are, restarted their lives, probably sometimes even at an older age point than where you are. And so that that I think is just inspiring. And I, you know, we, we talk about a lot, some of the things that you share about and so many members of our community just, you know, what do we do with that sacrifice, right? Like, do we continue to live in the survivalist mindset where it's like me, me, me? Or do we raise, particularly if you have kids like Joe and I do, like, how do we talk about that, but also, you know, talk about what's been super top of mind lately, like prioritizing mental health and, and to celebrate like non-traditional careers, right? Yeah. Like, so as we sit here today in the last, I don't know, 72 hours, Simone Biles decided to take a step back from the Olympic stage because of mental health. And then Suni Lee just goes and crushes it. And so she's bringing back home gold. You know, her, her father's a refugee. Like these stories are, you know, we should celebrate, but also think about how do we make these stories of the past, right? And mm-hmm. so I think that's really fascinating. So your, your father, educator at heart, a, a demonstrator, and I guess in Korea, the students always demonstrated the the educated, the sort of the, the young voice. Having that as a background and having come to Seattle, what were your some of your earlier influences professionally? Did you want to follow in his footsteps and to teach or what was that influence for you? Yeah. Uh, even one of my, actually it's one of those stories that I've been told and I don't even remember it, but as a kid in Korea growing up, um, my nickname was Hyun Sunseng. So my, my Korean name is Hyun. Sunseng means teacher. Um, and so, you know, I loved books and I think there was kind of this understanding that I was very much like my dad. And uh, they would they would call me Teacher Joe, you know, Hyun Sun Sang, Hyun Sun Sang. Uh, and so, yeah, I think there was a lot of expectation 
Well, not necessarily to be a professor, but to certainly achieve a lot and be an academic, right? Learn a lot, accrue a lot of knowledge and use that knowledge for status, security, stability, all the things that my parents my parents sacrificed. And to a large extent, my dad, because he came here at, an, at a later age tr- and tried to become a professor here um, as, a, as an Asian immigrant um, with, a, with a Korean accent, I think there was a lot of hope that I would be able to accomplish the things that he was unable to. So my my mom's big thing was like, oh look, Pan Ki Moon, he's the president of the United Nations. Like I, you know, I I imagine you being the ambassador to Korea or the ambassador to the U.S. because you're able to straddle both of these, you know, languages and cultures. Um, so yeah, my mom and and both my dad and my dad also had extremely high hopes um, for me. And and honestly, I, I had thought the exact same. I thought um, basically. Going into college, I thought I was going to be a journalist um, because I loved writing and I loved uh, learning about other people's stories and telling stories and and advocating for um, people who were suffering. And then uh, I think by the time I was ready to graduate, I was I was pretty much sold that I was going to be an educator, um, you know, researching PhD programs basically in, in ethnic studies, looking at Asian American studies, um, and specific with a focus on on music, how. Um, Asian American musicians were using their their art form as a vehicle for community formation and social justice, you know, et cetera. All the things that I uh, realized as I was writing the applications that I didn't want to study that I wanted to do. Where did that come from? That's not mm. normal. And and and, and, it's, <laughs> and I say that normal. with the utmost respect. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I say that with the utmost like respect, Joe, because sure. Those are not, and I say normal, those, that's not what the stereotype says, no, right? No, that, yeah, that's yeah. not what, you know, you're supposed to do, particularly if you're going to a school like Yale, right? Like journalism, one thing, right? But like, obviously, thinking about how Asian Americans leverage their musical talents to advance social causes, like, that's, that, I, I guess, you know, share with us, like, was there, was it your father who who sort of showed you through his life and the conversations there? Or because that that's not a very and, and I'm, it's awesome that you're doing it, particularly knowing what you're doing now. How, how did it lead to that? Sure. Well, one of the things that I appreciate about your podcast is that you challenge monoliths, the idea of the 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 Asian monolithic um, identity. And my dad was is in many ways pretty stereotypically Korean, but in many ways he is not. Um, he he did not come here as a merchant right opening you know teriyaki restaurant or a laundromat um, in the hopes that i will become a, a banker or you know whatever the case may be um he's very politically progressive um socially you know he's he's he is who he is right and he is a product of his time um but as far as foreign policy concerned i was constantly surrounded by pretty progressive and liberal ideas and ideals um when it came to how we should organize society and how we should advocate for um, for lower classes and for people who are often at the um, uh, who are being victimized by imperialism and colonialism. Um, so I, ha- I had a lot of that. They did, of course, still wish for me to help those people through things like being a doctor or uh, <laughs> being a lawyer or um, or even you know if you're gonna be a journalist, okay, like fine. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I think it, it was abnormal for sure. And even what my my, my mom uh, 
growing up, you know, she wasn't, you have to do this or you have to do this. Although there was, so, you know, very much encouragement towards uh, some of those more stereotypical professions. Um, her, her vocalized desire for me was do what you want, just be the best at it. Um, which in retrospect, like, come on, mom, like, <laughs> you, you know, I can do whatever you want, but you just have to be the best at it is, is, is definitely a tall order. But if I wanted to do music, I could have, um, but the best and the definition of what it means to be the best, I think was funneled through the lens of, of, of being a Korean immigrant. So if I was going to be the best musician possible, it meant being the next Sarah Chang and being the, the best, you know, classical soloist violinist, uh, in, in the world. And I had no desire to do that, uh, which is why I found myself <laughs> in, on the peripheries of music in college. Um, and also on the, per, you know, deeply engrossed in, in people and communities who are fighting imperialism and colonialism. Wow. That's, I mean, wise, wise beyond your ears. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. Like it's, I, I think that's awesome. Where did the violin come into play? Was that was that a stereotype that your parents just leaned into? No, actually. So I'm about to publish a TikTok video about this very story. Um, I remember so fourth grade. This is Seattle, Washington, and uh, we were all allowed to choose an instrument. Uh, and an instrumental music teacher would come every week and provide group lessons depending on what instrument you chose. And I remember telling my parents uh, I really wanted to play saxophone. I had been in the recorder ensemble, loved it. Uh, and the saxophone is just, it's just a cool instrument. Come on. Mm. It's so cool. Um, and all of a sudden in the house, there were tens of classical violin CDs, uh, which we had never owned to that point. All of a sudden there was Sarah Chang playing, you know, uh, Paganini. There was Sarah Chang playing Tchaikovsky and there was Sarah Chang playing Mendelssohn. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so then, of course, when the time came to choose an instrument, I ended up choosing violin. So I, I feel like my parents, uh, they Jedi mind tricked me. They didn't push me. They didn't say, you must. Right. Uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a subtler method. I think that's fascinating, man, because I think, at least in, in my situation and, and so many others, we're encouraged to do those things, but up to an extent, right? Like, it was never really... We, I swam like every day as, as part of the swim team. I played the clarinet. I did a lot of things. But I think in their mind, it's like, you know, Kung Bu or, or studying was the only thing. And right. all these things, they were told by their friends at church or whatever that in America, like you need to have those things to get into college. And therefore, they were seen almost as necessary evils or necessary things to help advance to the next level. But I don't think my mom was actually serious about me becoming an Olympic swimmer, swimmer or, you know, like taking that musical gift to the, the highest levels. How did the violin come into play or you're playing it through college? Because you switched from, I guess, professionally, at least, or from an academic perspective, you know, wanting to come and study journalism into sort of uh, mixing or uh, blending music into sort of what you wanted to do. Sure. Um, eventually, I guess the next chapter is then you followed in the footsteps of your father and, and taught for a little while. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. How, how did that continue to stay as a part of your, your uh, skills? Well, I think it was, it was funny you should mention. So yeah, there, there's definitely, it's a stepping stone. Music is a stepping stone, right? And uh, when things were stressful or if, if my mom perceived me to be lazy in high school, then her biggest threat would be, would be like, I'm going to cut the strings of your violin. 
Um, and, yeah, which is, <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of uh, trauma that I'm uh, still unpacking when it, <laughs> around the guilt of, of doing music, right? Which was a, a source of, of great joy for me. But it, as you were saying, it was certainly the backseat, right? It is your primary duty, very Confucian, right? Your primary duty is to be a student and to be the best student you can be. Um, and yeah, music was, she appreciated that it was important for me, but I think for, for her, it was, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a stepping stone and it was something that I should be, it's a hobby. Right. Um, and that's honestly in college too, that's basically how it was. Uh, I never thought of it as a career option. That's why I didn't take, uh, instrumental violin classes. Um, and in fact, I think the first year or two, I didn't have my violin there. I, I actually didn't do symphony. I joined an acapella group um, because it was fun. And when it came to studies, it was mostly history, uh, cultural studies, psychology, things of that nature that I was drawn to, but never, uh, yeah, but never, I never allowed myself to, to think of music as an actual topic of study, even though I studied musicians and their historical context. Yeah, so I mean that's one of it's one of the regrets that I have. Um, but at the same time, I was jamming. Once I did get a violin, I was jamming to the Beatles' Abbey Road album with all of my acapella friends in the basement until three in the morning. I was uh, performing uh, at little coffee houses for the Asian American Student Alliance. Uh, you know, when I was there, I was writing, started writing my own songs uh, and jamming with random people and working with different medium artists like dancers. Um, it's just, I never, it never occurred to me that this could be an actual profession. This was something that um, I was doing purely for joy. And uh, I would not, especially considering where I came from and the fact that I, as you said, I, I went to Yale, I was supposed to be the the saving grace of my family and to right to levy this education into achieving all of the things that my parents sacrificed yeah yeah were, were you what, what did your dad say when you when you told him you're going to yale and perhaps not harvard because that was his his goal right <laughs> no i mean we it was a beautiful moment i mean i i think so i was an international student my dad was here as an international student and so i was a dependent all the way throughout my time in oh, america really? yeah so we you know he didn't he never got a work visa um and it was when he graduated with his phd that was 2005. That's when I graduated from high school. So oh, wow. this whole time we were oh, not He was in school for a long time. Yeah. He mean he got his master's and his PhD and you know, it just, it took, it took a long time. And I think towards the end, because they wanted to make sure that we could graduate, you know, I think they kind of dragged a little bit too, mm. so that, right. We could stay here. Um, yeah. But that meant that when I was in school, I was an inter international student. And I think that was another part of the challenge of considering music as a career. Right, it, it, I needed to get a job with, with, or go to grad school and find a way to stay in this country. And slinging a violin or guitar from my back, and you know, or and hitching a ride in New York City was not going to allow for that stability. Wow! So I forget what the question yeah. was. No, I, I was making a snide remark about your dad's response oh, to oh, not right, Harvard. Right, right, right. Oh, right. Well, so <laughs> when I got in, this was um, I was applying to I applied to so many different schools and. Because I, there were very few schools that did need blind admission for international students. Oh, international students are often seen as right. cash cows, right? So you know you're the you're the son of some 
big international business, right? You're, you're the daughter of the CEO of Samsung. You know, we're going to milk this, right? I think that's kind of the admissions minds per- right. perspective. Um, and there are only four schools, I think, uh, that did it when I was applying, need blind financial aid for international students, and Yale was one of them. The notice came very late, and uh, you know, I just started crying. My sister came into the room, and she was like, what's wrong? Because she thought I'd been rejected to a, yet another school. And I was like, <laughs> I got in. And then she started crying. My parents came home from their walk. They hear us crying. They come. And so there's you know, just this snapshot where we're all in my room. We're all hugging each other, just, just weeping, this cathartic weeping. So yeah, then translate that into the pressure of, <laughs> of translating that uh, that that achievement into, yeah, healing and also being able to account and save, uh, and yeah, save save my family. That's awesome, man. That is that is so dope. I, I know you work with uh, you, you produce music for uh, for Jason. Were you guys friends in college? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where Jason and I met. Um, in fact, we yeah we collaborated on a, a song that we don't mention out loud anymore because it's so funny at this point. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we went to the same church. Uh, we uh, had a lot of great conversations around Asian American identity as well as religion uh, around, around that time. It's collectively bucking the stereotype of two Asian American men who go to Yale and then one raps and the other plays violin for a living. Way, way, <laughs> yeah. way to go guys. No, it's, I think it's, that's awesome, man. Jason's been on the show. Yep. He's a good friend of mine. And I think it's, we need more of, not only do we need more of y'all, we need to amplify your stories to let people know that to do the and, right? It's okay to pursue and achieve academic greatness and still do whatever you want, but not maybe even require one or the other, right? Like for sure. if you want to be a musician, perhaps, you know, going to school for four years is a detriment because you're wasting reps, right? You're wasting opportunity or, you know, do what you did do and, and pivot, right? Like, Heck, I went to grad school and I make podcasts and I speak for a living. Do I need, <laughs> did I need that to do this? No, but it certainly helps, right? For sure. And I'm sure, you know, in, in, your, in, in your work with household brands and other people, like, you know, when they read your bio, it's like, holy crap. I don't want to say it like you need these monikers of traditional success. However, they never hurt, right? Because the unfortunate reality is that there are people who make purchasing and decisions to hire people or to work with people who still unfortunately, or rightfully so, lean on some of these monikers or these things to help them, signals to help them make their own decisions. And so if it helps, heck, why not, right? And so tell us about your, your, your teaching years. How, why, after all that, because that seems to be a bit of a, a pivot too. For sure. Well, that's how, that's how I got a job out of college, right? At a private high school is because I had the, the Yale moniker, right, attached to, attached to my resume. Um, I got a job teaching at a, at private high schools um, because I, I mean I do love teaching and it's something that I've done um, for. I mean, if we go way back to uh, reading with my sister and riding a bike, um, you know, I've been teaching pretty much my whole life. Uh, and when it was time to graduate, and I had the immense pressure of finding a, a way to stay in this country, private schools were the only option really that. I was prepared for, and that could sponsor me for a work visa. Um, you know, I wasn't fit. I certainly was not qualified to work at you know Google or Facebook or any of these tech companies. But what I had was, yeah, what I had was a degree in American Studies. Um, so I was well versed in in literature as well as history. Um, and so, you know, I actually really wanted to do Teach for America, um, whatever 
people think about the program. That was, I, I would have loved to do that, but you had to be a, at least a permanent resident in order to, in order to teach for America. Um, and so instead I, I got a job at the urban school of San Francisco, um, which is one of the kind of elite private schools of that area as a teaching fellow. And then I got a job at the Overlake school in the heart of Microsoft country, um, teaching high school English, race and ethnicity and comparative religion. Wow. Yeah, it was great. I think of it in many ways as my finishing school. I learned a lot about responsibility and about being a professional. And also I learned a lot about, I, I expanded my worldview. Um, you know, if I was a kid, when I was a kid, there were things that just were off limits and wanting things beyond our means uh, was ashamed, was associated with shame and guilt. Uh, and so to see many of these, of my students who had, who really had choices um, made me realize what choices were never available to me, including doing music. Um, and it was my mentor teacher, uh, Mia Wall, who was supposed to be making me a better English teacher, uh, which she definitely did. Um, but she was also one of the few people early on when I shared my dream of, of doing music full time, um, who encouraged me and, and told me, who gave me the permission that I would that I think I, I never got to to pursue what I wanted. Hey, but I also imagine, you know, situationally, for folks who are familiar with the Redmond area or what you actually mean when you say Microsoft country, it's a tiny private school. I mean, the students and the parents who go there, they probably had access, had privilege, had, you know, whether they grew up with it or not, right? Like, it's it's a private high school in tech country in Seattle. And so, I mean, I'm sure the the opportunities and the conversations that you had perhaps a little bit mixed with frustration because of privilege, but also eye-opening that, you know, these kids are growing up with things that maybe you and I never had even possibility to dream and to grow up in the same town or same city as Seattle. But like, how are these worlds so freaking different? And Oh my gosh. Right. Um, and, and I think we can, we can, you know, talk about sort of the stereotypical, you know, um, tone deaf rich parents who send these kids to these schools, but also, you know, I, I think that given the area and sort of what we know about certain people, like it's not, what about that experience, I guess, whether it was through your mentor teacher or through your students or the community that eventually gave you the confidence to step away from that into who we know you as today? Sure. There's, there are always many different reasons and factors, but one of the projects, so they had an awesome thing called Project Week and the teachers lead uh, students who sign up to do various different projects. And the Project Week that I offered was singing and songwriting class. Um, and conversing with these very accomplished, academically accomplished students um, who wanted to pursue music uh, was really eye-opening for me. And, you know, I would ask them, what do your parents think about this? And their parents, um, you know, of course, some of them were more like my parents and, you know, that was, that was not encouraged. Uh, but I had, a, I had a couple of great conversations with students whose parents uh, basically encouraged their kids to be realistic. Let's think about your average musician. Let's take your guitar teacher uh, would you be happy with that lifestyle and think about, right. And think about what it means to live that life. Um, are you okay with that? And once the student said, yeah, I think I'm okay with that. Then they got their parents' blessing. And this idea of being okay with your child stepping down in class, right. These are high achieving, extremely high income parents who work at Microsoft, allowing their kids, right. To, to be an average musician, basically, knowing that, right, uh, that it, that blew my mind, right? that blew my mind at that point, because it was all about 
the sacrifices that my parents had made for me and for which I'm extremely grateful for. But being able to witness that and to see how the American dream was more complicated than just making more money than your parents. And it really comes down to the freedom to choose your life and choose what makes you happy. That changed my life. And I think that really encouraged me along with getting permission um, from some colleagues and mentors um, to try this thing before it's too late. Um, uh, that I that I realized I, I have to give this I have to give this a shot. And so when um, my when my wife uh, moved down to Sacramento to start her residency, um, I stopped. Uh, yeah, I stopped uh, teaching and uh, started doing music full time, which basically meant going to open mics five days a week and uh, losing a lot of money and sleep. <laughs> you went on a single income and with the, with the residence income, man, that's um, your don't let don't ever let your wife talk to my wife because they're going to share notes and say these, these guys, man, because <laughs> um, I, I jumped out uh, two years ago with with <laughs> with a double set of grad school loans and two kids. Oh, yeah. I love you. Kawa. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> but it's but I look, I, I think it also is another thing that we want to talk about, which is sort of the privilege that we also completely accept the fact that we could have done that right and it's not because we had a trust fund or we had this giant safety net where perhaps maybe some of the students that you taught where they had the privilege was actually in the freedom of failure right and to say like i'm gonna do whatever the hell i want because mommy and daddy are always gonna bail me bail me out but having enough belief in using that as a vehicle to change the world for the better in your vision and then to have the support system with the person that you know you decided to spend the rest of your life with like that i think i am so blessed to have that it sounds like you are too that must also and then share with us share with us as much as you want in this regard um <laughs> like because i, I want to talk about because i've been through that yeah, journey please, right like please what, how challenging was that? What are some of the tough conversations you had and, and what kept you going through mm. it? Obviously, you know, there's sort of, hey, if you make it to residency and you become a doctor, like financially we'll be okay or whatever it is, right? Like what what led you? And because you could have tapped out and gotten a job in Sacramento doing this or that or gone back to teaching. You had the resume to do a whole lot of stuff, I'd imagine. I, and I think where you are in life today, where I am in life today, where we have things as I rattled off your accomplishments and names that are so familiar to us, then they're like, oh, great choice, guys, right? Like you stuck with it. <laughs> now you've worked with this, this, and this. Like you guys seem to be okay. And and what a glorious life you lead that you can be home with your kids and live on a flexible schedule. But six, eight years ago for you and years ago for me, that wasn't there. How did you manage collectively, both you and your wife and your extended family too, to, to see yourself through this? Yeah, well, let's start with the family. Um, you know, my, my wife was very supportive. I think for her, it was also, she didn't want me to be regretful later. Um, and so it's like, okay, go, go do it. Um, and for my parents, yeah. I mean, I remember telling my mom, uh, we, she was living in Korea at that time. They'd moved back. And so this was one of my visits and we were at a cafe, beautiful cafe with delicious, uh, Korean bang, you know, bread and, and coffee. And I was like, okay, so like, uh, I'm not applying to grad school. I'm going to be a musician. <laughs> and I remember her just glaring at me in the way that only, only Asian moms can do. And she said, uh, 
그럼 예일 왜 갔니? Which is like, then why'd you go to Yale? Um, and you know, so there was definitely a lot of disappointment. Um, oh man, that I had to fight through um, to prove my worth, and I think that made those first two three years that much more difficult because I felt the intense pressure to to achieve in that realm as quickly as possible to show to prove that this was worth it. Um, and then there was also the internalized sexism and misogyny that. I was so convinced that I was uh, past that I was con- uh, suddenly confronted with as someone who was not making money in the house. Um, so my my wife is at work and uh, as a resident um, about to be a doctor, uh, and I'm sitting there. Um, I do love cooking, but you know, I, nobody likes cleaning dishes. So I'm sitting there washing pans and looking out the window and just being like, "What am I doing?" With my life, right? Um, you know, oh, okay. Once she comes home, and then she'll be home for a couple hours. Uh, I have to clean, and then I can go and play at an open mic for two people. If I'm lucky, then I won't be the last person drawn, and there's nobody there. Um, so I think I, yeah, I had to deal with a lot of that internalized sexism and misogyny, and realizing that deeply ingrained in me were definitions of what it meant to be a man. Um, and they did not revolve around domestic labor, but it was through um, the grace of of my partner um, and the many challenging conversations that we had. I guess that's a good way to put it, in which we had to constantly balance our roles as partners. Right? If we are one unit and there are a list of duties, and we strip away the gender connotations in, that are associated with each of these duties, we have to strike a balance, right? Um, and figure out. How we can balance these duties in a way that that makes sense for what we're doing with our lives um, and how we are related to each other, and that was that was tough, um, especially in the beginning when I was I really was not making any money. I was sinking money. Well, can you relate? <laughs> there, there's probably you know for for people who've listened to the show for a while. I don't. This show is not about me. This is show always about the guest, and I shared a little bit on episode 100 when when I shared. But man, you know. What I want to do, what I continue to, I think, remind myself is both live life differently with the privilege that I am experiencing now based on uh, the successes or growing successes of this podcast and the speaking business, but also to really never forget those troubling times when, yeah, I mean, we joke about it now, but like, what if didn't, what if it didn't work, right? I never wanted to go work for somebody else again, not because of this desire, I mean, partially because of this desire to uh, prove my point and how I wanted to impact the world, but also just this lack of me being me, right? Because it doesn't matter whether you work for a company, a school, or a nonprofit, like you exchange a lot of your uh, authenticity and yourself for that paycheck, mm-hmm. um, especially in, in some of the things that I know that you feel passionate about from a social issues perspective, where, where I assume aligned in a lot of the things that we feel and you know how we want to impact this world. And, and so let's talk about that. You've, you've been a, a self-employed or a, a self-branded musician for a long while. Recently, you, you've taken to TikTok and Instagram to make more, I guess, digestible formats and, and more fun formats. And I want to talk about your kit stuff in a little bit. But for now, let's, let's focus on sort of, I guess, at the intersection of all the parts of Joe K, right? The, the violin, the gifts, the talents, but also the things that always guided your heart ever since, you know, what your father taught you based on his experiences of, of just doing the damn right thing. <laughs> when, when did you know, like, trial and error? Was it TikTok is a hard 
interesting beast. How did you get started? How was it first received? And how do you keep going? Because that's how you and I, you know, found each other. And I'm grateful for that. Sure. Also to Han Han Huang up there yeah. in, in, in PDX. Kim Jong Grillin. I actually saw him a couple of weeks ago when he was out in LA. We're awesome. a great guy. But yeah, t- tell us about sort of this new chapter of you being a TikTok star. TikTok star. Ooh, oh, I don't know about that. Uh, and sorry, side note, and you can edit this out. Um, I, I actually, I do go by Joe Kai, and I think that's kind of become the brand. So if um, if you could say Joe Kai, that would be, that would be awesome. All right. I'm going to say it at the beginning. We're going to keep this because I think this is also a part of who, who we are, who we are oh, not. Oh, God. Oh, gosh. Why? You got me publicly uh, pushing back. Come on, come on. No, <laughs> I think no. Look, no. There's, there's. <laughs> listen, there's. So perfect time to talk about this, right? So oh, okay, okay. I yeah, I've yeah. been thinking a lot about. I'm red. Not using Jerry as my name, right? Mm. I wasn't born Jerry, right? Mm, 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 mm. My name was. I was named after the mouse because I couldn't mm. see it sit still. Oh, wow. I know. They had like an eight-year observational period of like, what the hell do we name this kid? <laughs> and they're like, oh, you know, no uh, no attention. No kungi, right. as they say, right? Oh, no wow. no uh, tenacity, yeah, uh, yeah. Which, is, which is a value trait in the Korean, Korean mindset. Sure. Sure. So anyway, but, you know, as of late, it's like, who the hell is Jerry? What does that name stand for? And who do I want to be? And especially as I've decided to and have become a huge proponent and advocate of our community like mm. is jerry the right thing to go by sure partially is because my korean name is Hun, which is really hard for some people to say um but also they that's not what i'm known as but i'm just keep i'm deciding to keep with jerry because i also understand that you don't get to tell me at the same time what authenticity means to me mm. and if i want to go by jerry or pronounce my last name in a certain way that makes it more easily remembered or pronounced then I think that prerogative should purely be on you, right? And so there is also this necessity to keep in mind that when you're in business for yourself, you are the business and you are the brand. And therefore, look, like I don't think anybody should be such a traditionalist and be like, that's wrong. That's only wrong if you believe that your ancestors who came up with the name said so. Sure. Because everything's made up, right? Right. Like, <laughs> right. And so, fine. No, no, it's not like I, I want to respect your wishes, right? So no, 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 no. Thank you for that. No, I, I think that's awesome. I just I always go with the traditional pronunciation, and I'm sure I don't do the same for non-Korean names because I just don't know. Right, right, right. But when we get Korean guests on the Korean American guests on the show, I'm like, hey, why not? But anyway, mm. uh, we'll, we'll go with Joe Kai because I think that's also important for people to know you and remember you, and sure. eventually to hire you and put bucket loads of money in your pocket <laughs> bucket because you got you got you got tiny people to carry about just like i do for sure no thank you for that um and thank you for breaking that down i think that's totally true and I, and yeah it's the agency right it's the ability to choose um, which is why my twitter handle now is it's jokai kehyun like i put my korean uh my put my korean name in there um for the people for all the korean people out there you know sorry where were we uh, your, 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 your budding TikTok career. Oh, right. Yes, short, yes, short yes. Short form video. Speaking of branding, um, you know, I think it's a long, it's been a long ways. I mean, I was an Asian American studies major, but I think since basically Atlanta, a little bit before Atlanta, and I would say during the, the heat of the racial reckoning, um, that must continue, but, um, I think, was fully unveiled to a larger section of America last year with the George Floyd murder and then the protests. Um, 
I became much more interested in inward facing content. And what I mean by that is my music has always had a social justice bent, but I think it was geared towards a white majority. Um, it was all about, this is my experience as an immigrant, and I too feel this way. Don't you? We all do. That, that I think that was kind of the underlying message. Um, and now I needed to find a way to more directly address um, to address my my inner workings, right? Um, even at those concerts, you know, after I play and I'm you know in the lobby after the show and signing CDs and talking to people, I've heard hundreds of microaggressions in that space. And so then, and that's why I couldn't. I always felt like I couldn't bring my full self to my performance because in my mind this was a this was a white world and a white market that I was bringing my music into and the more that I could be palatable the more successful that I could be and I think with the racial reckoning I, I found a a real need um, spiritual need to bring my full self to my performance personality and which is why I started making these microaggression jingles and uh, <laughs> and also funny songs about uh, laughing at and making fun of white supremacy. And it came out of a real kind of therapeutic need for me to create something that was 100% for me. And in doing so, I have met and built an amazing community of like-minded um, people of color, uh, whether they're Asian Americans, whether they're you know Latino, Latinx, um, or you know, Black Americans, whatever the case, there's a real, there's a secondary awakening, I think, to the fact that we are all united in this fight against white supremacy. Um, and so I've found that community, and then I've also found that the the audience that I had is receptive to it, uh, and also very much attracted to and appreciative of this extra layer and dose of truth that I'm bringing to my performances and my art. Um, and then I'm discovering whole new white audiences that are really thirsty for education and want to be better allies, which is honestly the audience that I wanted to cultivate anyway. And so it's been, it's been really gratifying um, for many reasons. And it's also funny that, you know, it, in the TikTok world, I was first really trying to do as much of the trending stuff as possible, right? Uh, okay, uh, little Nas uh, X is playing. Okay, call me by your name. So I'm going to do this crazy violin cover. And, you know, it would, it would get like an okay amount of views slash not really that many views. Um, oh, I'm going to do this uh, Miyazaki, you know, cover. Great. Okay. And like, okay, whatever. And it's really been when I've leaned into this thing that I that really drives me as a person and as a as a creator that it's that's it's it's exploded in many different ways. That's wonderful, man. And I think there's there's so many lessons even just in that, right? Because you, you started a little bit more than a year ago. Um, if you, if you scroll all the way down, low hundreds, right? Certainly not what you're experiencing now. But but two lessons that I see: one is just tenacity and repetition, right? Not giving up. But two. You blew up when you actually just beat you, not to try to fit <laughs> this, you know, algorithmic formula to chase something, which is a lot of what, which is a lot of people's strategy in, in social media, right? I, I think this is both of, you know, uh, I don't want to speak for you, but at least from the, you know, external observation, like you're just being you, you're, you're being you using your medium, which is your voice and your musical gifts to talk about the things that matter to you and to say 
whatever it is, without really caring about what the haters are going to say. So many times we don't speak up. You and I both have the privilege of not having a corporate employer who's going to ping us and saying, hey, we need to talk because we only work for ourselves. You know, as, as long as Kyungwa doesn't take me, tell me to take stuff down, like, I'm cool. <laughs> right. that's, that's, my, that's my HR. <laughs> but I think that's really inspiring to me and to so many other people in that you will eventually find your audience. And there's never been a better time, in my opinion, at least in our lifetimes, where being you and talking about everything about your identity, including the vulnerabilities, is going to be accepted. I hope it's better for our kids when they grow up. I mean, that's why we're doing what we're doing, right? Yeah. To make sure that it's a big deal, probably, that two Korean American dudes in their 30s are talking about this, Mm. right? Like Mm. our grandparents would have, this is incomprehensible, right? Right, right, right. Wildest dreams. Feelings and, you know. I mean, look, I, I don't know. I don't know if your parents ever joke about it, but like I'm sitting here thinking like I'm 38. We came here 30 plus years ago. And after everything that my parents went through to help me get into the right schools and to blah, 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 like you make your money doing what? <laughs> Talking about Asian American stuff. That's not even in the wildest dreams of how we build community and eventually wealth and build our lives in this country. Because again, like your your mom sort of facetiously said, like, why the hell did you go to Yale? Right? Like, I'm sure my mom hasn't said it to me, but I'm sure it's like, <laughs> like, why'd you go to grad school? Like, right, right, you're right. gonna do that, right? right, and, right. and I, and I want to just say, like, that line of thinking is really, really toxic to people chasing their dreams, because you're doing what you're doing, because you went to Yale, in the way that only a Yale grad can, given People hire you, you have connections, you have resp- And so the way that I run this business is different because of graduate school, not 100%. that it's useless, right? And so yeah. uh, this is for all the young people out there who are going to name brand schools that might be pigeonholing themselves into this weird expectation cycle of if XYZ school, then I only have like four things I can do. That's really bad. Do whatever you want, but do it in the best way possible because of your education. And then I, then I, you know, especially if your parents are expecting you to be one of like three things, right? Like, you know, your, your traditional stuff or like if business, fine, banker, consultant, tech, but like there's people that are not so happy there. Yeah. And, and even, even if you're not going to one of those name brand schools, the classes that you take will, and the things that you learn all make you, you. Um, So if you be, if you do become a doctor, but you took a Native American studies course that you absolutely loved, like don't look upon that with regret and let that fuel what medicine means to you, right? Let, let's talk legacy. We're, we're two dads in their 30s with tiny, tiny people. What, what do you want your kids to be proud of you for? Why, why are you doing all this? Wow. Oh my gosh. Uh, what do I want my kids to be? Other than like being maybe cool in preschool because you make kids videos too. For sure. Um, <laughs> That's high joke high, by the way. I'll, I'll put all the links there, but... You have an adult version of your stuff and a kid's version of your stuff, right? Or content, not not the audience, but the, the content, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think I want my kids to see and witness how passionately I worked towards something that I believed in. And if they can see how hard I worked uh, for this thing and how hard I worked to make this thing for the benefit of not just for myself, but for a larger group of people, um, that are suffering um, at the hands of those in power and that what you do for work and what you devote your life to can have deep meaning uh, beyond the paycheck. 
while also doing these things, you know, with a sense of stability and professionalism, then then I think I'll I'll be happy. And uh, I mean, legacy is a very interesting question. I think if people don't become performers or podcast hosts because they have zero sense of ego. You know, I certainly have one, and it's something that I'm constantly grappling with. But I think on a good day, when I've had a real good meditation session, then you know, like I'm not going to be around to enjoy my legacy when I'm gone. Uh, and I don't know when I'm going to go. I could get hit by a car, you know, right after this podcast um, when I'm walking across the street or something. And so what I can control is is how I how I go about making, um, not how it is received. Uh, and so if I can just say um, that with the fire that I was given, I, I spread that fire and I gave it on, you know, gave this torch on to other people to, to take forth into their lives, to bring a little more lightness into the world, then, um, then I'll die happy. And I think I can say that I am currently doing that. That's awesome, man. Knock on wood. <laughs> knock, knock. <laughs> that, that, that pause wasn't there for <laughs> Let, Let's wrap up. Um, we don't typically do this on the show, but say something to your kids. Maybe they'll listen to this one day. Oh my gosh. Um, Okay, I will say something to my kids, and I'll, I also do have something slightly pre- prepared uh, that I thought of 30 minutes before hopping on this. For Dear Asian America, um, oh, for my kids, be you and constantly challenge yourself what it means to be you. No better message. Be you at all costs, I, I think is, I don't, I don't think we will ever get to that point. I think there's so many archaic and sometimes really toxic expectations that we not only put on ourselves, but we then internalize on, particularly from an immigrant's perspective of what were we supposed to have made of the sacrifices that my parents and my grandparents made, you know, what it means to be a, here, here we are during the Olympics, right? Like bring honor to your country, right? Like, mm. you know, we do something like you, if you and I were to do something on a, on a international scale, like Korea would be more proud of us in America, to be honest with you. Yeah. And so like, yeah, what yeah. kind of silly pressures do we put on ourselves, right? My niece had her, her Torjanchi a couple of weeks ago and I went and hmm. my cousin, my distant cousin, we're talking about sort of what I'm doing. And the first thing he says is, you know, what would be really cool is like if you spoke in Korea, like that's his first measure of <laughs> what he would like for me from a professional perspective. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. then to be frank, like, you know, my ego says like when I publish my book, the goal is to have it be popular enough to be picked up and translated mm. so that somebody can go pick it up in Korea, right? Because Heck yeah. that's awesome, right? And then maybe for you, it's headlining a concert in Korea. But even with that, it comes with certain expectations and sort of this drive to either please other people, you know, and, and I think it's really hard. And so if you're young and you're dealing with this and you think that like this, like doing what you want is the same thing as disobeying your parents, it's mm. not. Mm. It, it's really, really not. And in my opinion, again, I don't know your unique situations, folks, but like better to have the really difficult conversation now than to be resentful for your resentful towards your parents for decades and to lose opportunity, especially if you're young and the thing that you want to build requires some sort of compounding effect. And so, yeah, w- with that, we would love for you to help us close out the show by doing our uh, traditional Dearest Americans letter. I feel like it's going to be something different, but we would love for you to share a message of inspiration or anything to the Dears Americans audience. So I'll start the letter. And if you can help us finish out the show uh, by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Yes. Okay. Yes, um, the violin is out, folks. The violin is out. I, if, I, if, I, if, you're, I, if you're listening on the podcast, the violin is out and I am smiling. 
<laughs> I started this out. Uh, I started thinking about this, so we'll, we'll see how it uh, comes out. Uh, Dear Asian America, let us march, let us strut. If they can't handle us, don't give up. Duck. <laughs> there it is there it awesome, is awesome man look i i am so glad we were able to have this conversation and and personally for me you know i have the honor of talking to the the beautiful diversity of the people that make up our community but you know in moments like this when i can talk to a fellow korean american dad I, I think there's a little bit more resonance to sort of our collective experience because the way that our dads loved us is very different than the way that perhaps at least I define mm. uh, paternal love. And thinking about how our grandparents, especially through the war and stuff and through occupation, in one lifetime, in three generations, we've evolved in ways that are not comprehensible or ever done in history. And so I think for us to collectively try as men in their 30s and 40s now trying to raise the next generation of kids. It's really, really awesome when you meet other folks who are on that same wavelength of trying to create a world that we do not see today, being raised by parents who lived up in a very different world, particularly in Korea post-war. And so I, I think we are so blessed to have spent the majority of the past year with our tiny people, certainly changing the dynamics of how we view parenthood. I wish nothing, nothing but all the success in the world to you, man. I, I hope as the... Uh, the world hopefully allows for in-person performances. Please make it down to LA. You know, we have family up in Oregon. So if we swing up there, we'll definitely come see you play. And, and really, I, I think through your gifts and through it all, you're, you're doing something for not just the current, but the next generation of Asian Americans that I don't think has really been done, which is to inspire through music at the earliest age and to make sure that it's okay. To, as you said, your, your singular message for your kids was to just to be you. And when we all think that way, I think it opens up in an amazing world of acceptance, uh, not just tolerance, but acceptance and celebration from non-Asian American folks to let us be us and to, and to be safe in thinking about that. So keep on doing what you're doing. Shout out to your wife. Shout out to your family for allowing mm -hmm. you on, on this path. And I mean, you already got some, some monster names that you've, you've worked with, but continue kicking ass, continue calling out those white supremacists and We'll have some fun doing it together, man. Thank you for today. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And we'll put wherever you can find Joe in the show notes. You might be driving. You might be at the gym. So you don't got to write anything down. But at Joe Kai is where you can find Joe. And he's performing. If, if you're in the Beaverton area, I think you're performing in August. So we'll make sure that this episode gets out before then because it'd be really awkward if it would have passed. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, Joe. Uh, stay safe. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Jerry. Big shout out to Joe for making time for our conversation today. Um, just personally speaking, always a really great opportunity and a great time to talk to fellow dads uh, about our own journeys, what motivates us and what, what challenges us. Um, Joe has really been an amazing um, discovery, I guess, uh, when I found him on Instagram, uh, sharing his musical gifts or leveraging his musical gifts to share the messages uh, that mean a lot to him and to me and so, so many other people. Uh, really great to see him evolve in his work and to uh, do some really cool stuff. So uh, shout out to the city of Portland. Uh, shout out to uh, our friend uh, Han Lee uh, of King John Grillin, who through him, I discovered Joe. And, 
yeah, go check him out at Joe Kai, J-O-E-K-Y-E. You can follow us on Instagram at Dear Asian Americans and follow the links there. Uh, shoot us an email if you have any thoughts or comments or want to come on the show. Hello at TheAsianAmericans.com is where you can find us. Or you can follow my personal account at Jerry J1. And until next time, friends, stay healthy, safe, and happy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and we'll see you next time on The Asian Americans. <laughs>